hospital staff and space are in short supply in Beijing as a surge in COVID infections overwhelms China. It is Monday, December 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Winter weather turned deadly in western New York over the weekend. This has been a very devastating and difficult storm, unlike anything uh, that even the city of Buffalo is used to getting. You'll get the story on how a barber shop owner sheltered dozens of his neighbors during the blizzard. The James Webb Space Telescope rocketed into space one year ago. With just a few short images, uh, boom, the ring system's just pop right out, and they're just gorgeous. You'll hear about how the telescope is pushing scientific boundaries. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Some four dozen people are dead in the U.S. from a massive winter storm rare in scope that sent temperatures plunging and snow piling. The Arctic air is slowly making its way out, but Buffalo, New York, is still in survival mode. Another foot of snow is forecast there. The storm has so far left at least 25 people dead in Erie County. The power is out for thousands. From member station WAMC, Ian Pickus reports the region has come to a standstill. A driving ban remains in effect in western New York with even more snow in the forecast through Tuesday. Governor Kathy Hochul says the thruway will remain closed in the region until further notice. We still have scores and scores of vehicles that were abandoned when people left during the storm or just in a ditch they can't possibly get out. We have had snow plows, major snow plows and rescue vehicles I saw them myself in ditches buried in snow. With a statewide state of emergency still in effect, first responders are also grappling with several feet of snow and frigid temperatures in the Watertown area in northern New York. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany. The bad weather is also broadly disrupting flights. The FlightAware website reports roughly 9,000 delays and cancellations so far today. Anna Kong is trying to get to San Diego, but has been making the rounds at Chicago's airports. Two flights got canceled. Uh, We did in line for about an hour and a half uh, to book another flight at the other airport. So I went from O'Hare to Midway. Her midway flight, that was grounded too. Southwest says more than half of its flights have been canceled today. Russia says three of its servicemen died from a Ukrainian drone attack on its military base. NPR's Charles Maines reports. Russia's defense ministry said the attack was carried out by a low-flying Ukrainian drone on the Engels Air Base, more than 300 miles northeast of Ukraine's border. The ministry said its air defense systems had successfully downed the drone, but falling debris had fatally wounded several technicians working on the base. The region's local governor said the incident posed no threat to civilians in a nearby town. Earlier this month, Russia accused Ukraine of a similar attack on the airfield, which has been home to long-range strategic bombers that have carried out missile strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure structure. The Ukrainian military has neither confirmed nor denied involvement in either incident, but called a series of recent explosions inside Russia karma for the Kremlin's actions in Ukraine. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. As it moves away from its zero-COVID policy, China is taking a big step toward reopening to the rest of the world. Starting January 8th, they will drop a COVID quarantine requirement for incoming international travelers and will start reissuing some visas. Beijing also says it will no longer publish daily infection numbers. At the same time, COVID outbreaks are overwhelming Chinese hospitals. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A group of Boston public school parents is pushing for a temporary new indoor mask requirement in schools after the holiday break. Krista Magnuson is part of the group Families for COVID Safety. She says she hopes a mandate will protect against another surge in illness. It's disruptive, um, not just for the kids and the fact that they're losing time in the classroom when they get sick, but it's disruptive, you know, if if schools are scrambling to find substitute teachers. This just seems like a really good way to sort of protect that learning time, both for the faculty and the students. BPS leaders are set to met with meet with public health officials this week to consider COVID protocols. If there are any changes, then officials will make an announcement by the end of this week. For Massachusetts to meet its legally binding climate goals, buildings across the state will need to undergo a massive transformation. Think electric heat instead of gas or oil, better insulation, and perhaps solar panels. One building type that could use particular attention is schools. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports that a coalition of education and environmental groups has an idea to help jumpstart the work. If established, the Zero Carbon Renovation Fund would use a portion of the state's remaining COVID relief dollars to help retrofit buildings. Sarah Ross of the group Undaunted K-12 says schools in lower-income areas would be a great place to use some of the money. School buildings reflect already patterns of inequity due to our funding formulas. Climate change is going to widen those gaps unless we focus resources on the most vulnerable Consider a school that needs to upgrade its heating system, Ross says. The money could be used to help pay for the added cost of an electric heat pump, which would be more climate-friendly and better for indoor air quality. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Salem's inaugural Frozen Fire Festival is kicking off this hour at Charlotte Fortin Park. The free festival runs through New Year's Day and features ice sculpture carvings, fire performers, live music, pop-up stores, and food and drinks. People attending the event also have access to heated igloos, fire pits, and blankets if needed. It is 33 degrees in Boston with lows dropping to the low 20s overnight. A sunny Tuesday, tomorrow's highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. More than half the U.S. faced winter weather advisories over the holiday weekend. The worst conditions were in western New York. The city of Buffalo has reported more than two dozen deaths so far. Mayor Byron Brown told NPR some people in Buffalo have been without power since Friday. This has been a very devastating and difficult storm, unlike anything uh, that even the city of Buffalo is used to getting. Around the city, people have been pitching in to help feed and shelter their neighbors. Like Craig Elston, owner of the CNC Cuts Barber Shop. He posted this video to TikTok on Saturday afternoon. Yo, please, man. Anybody out there that's stuck, do not stay in your car, man. The barber shop here welcomes you. Get some heat, get some electricity, charge your phone, get in contact with your family. Folks in Buffalo took Elston up on that offer. He told me about 30 people took shelter at his barbershop over the weekend. People were actually sleeping here. A lot of people I, I, I've never even met before. A lot of people that 
was visiting Buffalo and they got stranded in cars. A lot of people that was without heat and gas. I just wanted them to have somewhere where they could come charge their phone and see if they can get somebody to come help them. Tell me about how the idea came to you that this could actually be a shelter for people. Uh, it really didn't come. Once I seen the first person laid out on Bailey and Kensington in the snow, it, it broke my heart. And I'm sitting in here with heat and uh, lights, and the barbershop is warm, and it's a big space that can heat and, and, and shelter other people. So it just naturally you know, came upon me, like, Craig, open the barbershop up, do a live video on all platforms, and let people know that they can come here and um, get some type of shelter. So you just went on social media and said, I've got a warm place for you to sleep if you need it. And then strangers started showing up. Yeah, everybody. Everybody started to show up. And, you know, I, I did my best to try to get to a corner store to get them some food, some drinks. Um, and there's a vending machine in here that, you know, they did have access to that. And for the people that didn't have any money, I reached in my own pocket and gave them money to get something to eat. I told people where the closest store at was open. Some people went in packs of five and four and went down there to the store and came back to the shop. There's some people that live in an apartment building that came and gave food. Some people gave food to me, me to eat, because I was so concerned with helping everybody else that sometimes I didn't even eat myself. So what was Christmas dinner? Stuff from the vending machines? Hot Pockets, I hear? Christmas dinner was uh, Vienna sausages, Hot Pockets, chips, peach tea, um... (laughs) That's, that was Christmas dinner. I'm imagining this is not how you plan to spend Christmas. No, man. I, you know, I mean, my daughters, man. I got, I got a daughter named Aaliyah Elston and Madison Elston that's stranded with their mothers, and I wasn't even able to get some of the things that I got for Christmas to them. So it's kind of heartbreaking in that, you know what I mean? I wasn't able to even see my daughters on Christmas. Yeah, and everybody who was staying at the barbershop was in a variation of the same position. None of them were doing what they planned for Christmas either. No. People were crying. The barbershop floor, it's so crazy because so many footprints is here on the floor. You know, people was sleeping in the corners of the shop, sleeping in the, the barber chairs. You know, I, put, I put TV on so we could watch movies. We watched the football game together. So there was this kind of camaraderie that formed. Yeah. And a lot of people were telling me thank you. Uh, the first person that knocked on the door, it was uh, like 10 o'clock at night. And his fingers was like almost purple. And his face mm-hmm. was red. And he was telling the people that, yo, I, I would have died if I would have been out there another two minutes. And I didn't know it was that serious at, at that point. I felt bad because I was like, you know, just making a normal joke. Like, why are you out there? Like, what you doing? You crazy? But then I seen people dying. And I was like, oh, yo, this is serious. So then, you know, I felt bad. Like, you know, I, I was like, yo, I got to help other people. Like, I'm going to help him. Clearly, I'm not going to leave him out there in the cold. How many people do you still have there? Oh, at this current moment, it's just me in here. Okay. Um, I'm just going to stick where I'm at. And, you know, the door is still open for people that want to come. I know this is far from the most important thing right now, but did you give any haircuts? Actually, I did. You did? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I cut maybe five people, man. It's unbelievable. They're like, yo, can you get a cut? And I'm like, seriously? You make yeah. a little money while you're at it. Yeah. If you're going to be buying food for 30 people who are sleeping in your barbershop, you can at least earn some cash through cutting people's hair.
You know, you're saying that it's sad you weren't able to see your daughters on Christmas, but I'm guessing this is probably the most memorable Christmas you've had in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm never going to forget this Christmas because in front of my eyes, I've seen people that was almost half, like half to death. And if I can have an opportunity to help somebody, I think that's what we all supposed to do. Um, we supposed to try to assist and help one another as much as we can instead of the crazy stuff that be going on around the city, man. Well, Craig, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for all you've done for the community. I appreciate it. Over the weekend, several buses from Texas arrived here in Washington. They dropped off migrants near the official residence of Vice President Kamala Harris in some of the coldest weather D.C. tends to get this time of year. It's not clear who organized this latest round of drop-offs, but it seems similar to other times when the governors of Texas, Florida, and Arizona have transported migrants to cities that discourage deportation. In previous instances, local governments and volunteers have stepped in to help those who arrive with limited resources. NPR's Gus Contreras learned how some D.C. chefs are part of the effort. Inside a steamy home kitchen in northwest Washington, Ana Monje is busy making tamales. Monje has been making hundreds of tamales a week since August, 300 on Tuesdays and about 200 on Saturdays. Recently, she made an order of 400 in one morning. The banana leaf-wrapped tamales she's making are going to migrants who've recently arrived in Washington. <laughs> Christianita Bien is a D.C. chef who was moved by the stories of immigrants arriving on buses. The immediate sensation was like, how can I help? Coming to this country as an immigrant is already uh, a hard enough journey as it is of leaving everything you know behind in the hopes of finding something better. Uh, it definitely hit home. EWN teamed up with chef Eric Brunner-Yang, who also wanted to help out. Both chefs are from immigrant families and have volunteered to cook in the midst of real-world crises. A thing that we say often is that, you know, as cooks, oftentimes we don't know how to do a lot of things, but we do know how to cook and people need to eat. Before the pandemic, EWN went to Tijuana to cook meals for Hondurans migrating north. And Brunner-Yang was in Poland earlier this year feeding Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. They came up with a plan to make tamales, a meal that would be familiar to the mostly Venezuelan migrants making the journey to Washington. So with money raised from a GoFundMe, they hired Anna Monke. She's a mother of one of Brunner Yang's employees. She'd already been making and selling tamales as a side hustle, but now they'd be going to people in need. Next, the crew needed a way to get warm tamales into the hands of hungry migrants. My name is Jessica Cisneros, and I currently am a volunteer with Mutual Aid Migrant Solidarity. Jessica Cisneros has been helping out for about six months now, distributing food and more. For this, there was this clear vacuum where no one was doing anything, no one in power was doing anything to respond, um, and there was such a huge need, and it was something that like I could just jump right into. Since buses started arriving, D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser has established an Office of Migrant Services for the city. But volunteers like Cisneros are essential, and Cisneros says it's been tough juggling it all. Her normal job, raising her daughter, and helping new arrivals feel welcomed and cared for. But that the work is worth it. I feel like there's a lot of people that lament the state of the world, but like aren't actually doing a lot about it. And so I feel like I've met so many people who are really doing something about it. And there are these webs you know, of people that care um, in DC, and so it's been lovely to get tapped into those. 
On one of the first cold days of the fall, I meet Cisneros in northeast Washington. The trunk of her car is full of winter clothing for the newly arrived migrants, unprepared for the weather. It's not the mall night, but she's passing out fresh mango and pineapple Chef Irabien had left over from a catering gig. Osvaldo is 37 and originally from Venezuela. He asked us not to use his last name due to his immigration status. Osvaldo's checking out some cozy sweatpants and clothes for his kids. They made the journey on a bus from Texas. I have a brother who lives in Virginia and I came with my 12-year-old son. My wife and three other children are on their way to meet us. Osvaldo tells me everything has been hard about their journey, but that they're doing it for the future of their kids. The hardest thing about this is being without your family, with everything that's going on. Traveling through the jungle isn't easy, and a lot of people died along the way. Everything is hard, but it will sort itself in the end. Osvaldo says he hopes to be allowed to work soon, but isn't quite sure what's next. For now, he's thankful for the help. Back at the restaurant, Chef Irabien says as long as migrants continue to come, they'll try to find a way to keep feeding them. It's not like you can just make one meal and you're done. People need to eat every day. <laughs> Being able to cultivate community within our immigrant circles is, is what makes everything be able to flow very, very easily. Gus Contreras, NPR News. An NPR investigation has found that in some states, kids can be taken from their mothers and fathers forever if the parents fail to pay certain foster care debts, even debts they didn't know about. How some parents are fighting to get their children back, tomorrow on All Things Considered. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418 and coming up on All Things Considered, one reviewer's take on the best films of 2022. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. On Wall Street, the stock market was closed today in observance of the Christmas holiday. In business news, ski areas in Massachusetts are expecting this week between Christmas and New Year's Day to be busy. Chris Dimson with Wachusett Mountain in Westminster says season pass sales are holding steady despite a shaky economy. Maybe some people are carpooling more. Maybe they downgraded their season pass so they're not coming as often. But we do still see people coming every weekend, uh, every year. Stimson says weather conditions have been promising, and that will help with snowmaking. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. 
Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. It is 32 degrees in Boston, lows overnight dropping to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Tuesday and temperatures in the mid-30s. On Wednesday, mostly cloudy skies and highs reaching the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been a year of recovery for Hollywood. Ticket sales bounced back during the summer. So did the number of films released to theaters. And while the numbers are still only about two-thirds of what they were before the pandemic, they represent a big jump from the last two years. As for the quality of the new releases... Well, that's up to judging from critic Bob Mondello's 10 best list, which positively overflows. Two solid years of studios holding back, theaters hanging on, audiences thinking twice, and then suddenly in the spring it was everything, everywhere, all at once. Just as folks were coming out of pandemic-era lockdowns, a comedy about infinite possibilities, less chaos theory than chaos practical. What's happening? A middle-aged Asian businesswoman gets a big surprise during a tax audit. I'm not your husband. I'm another version of I'm from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. A whole time to help you. Doesn't matter. She'll learn to multiverse hop in pursuit of her best self. Everything Everywhere All at Once leads a parade of impressive films this year centering on women. Another is Tar, in which Kate Blanchett gives a breathtaking performance as a symphony conductor who tells an interviewer early on that she is all about control. The illusion is that like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. That level of control doesn't work out very well for Lydia Tarr, and it's almost unimaginable for the women in an isolated religious colony who are told in Sarah Polly's Women Talking that to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must forgive their abusers. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant, and some of us are dead. We cannot forgive because we are forced to. Women Talking is a passionate adaptation of a best-selling novel. For a real-life instance of the power of one woman talking, there's the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which explores photographer Nan Golden's career as an artist. Photography is like a flash of euphoria and gave me a voice. Then shows how she used that voice in a long shot but successful crusade to hold the museum endowing Sackler family accountable for the opioid addiction crisis caused by their company, Purdue Pharma. We need to demand that the Met Museum delude the Tate refuse donations from the Sacklers and take down their name. All the beauty in the bloodshed qualifies as art in its own right. 
Something you could also say of the Bloodshed Without Beauty epic that is All Quiet on the Western Front, the first German-made version of the wrenching anti-war classic about a hapless German soldier in World War I. Sweeping and horrifying in its carnage, All Quiet on the Western Front feels as if it's acquired fresh resonance as soldiers die by the thousands in Ukraine. A conflict of a more intimate sort fuels the Banshees of Inisharan about a longtime friendship that one day simply ceases to be. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You liked me yesterday. Banshees of Inisharan is a tale of buddies that plays like a blood feud. That's six of my top ten. The next two are foreign language films, though the first of them barely has any language at all. Eo centers on a donkey who is cast adrift when a Polish circus is disbanded. Eo. A portrait of modern Europe as seen through the biggest brown eyes imaginable, Eo is at once a curiosity, an adventure, and an emotionally freighted commentary on humans and nature definitely not for children. The Korean detective story, Decision to Leave, feels far more conventional until, at midpoint, it changes course. Vertigo-inspired, but very much its own vision, it boasts lush romance, obscure motives, and characters you trust about as far as the director can drop them off a cliff. If Decision to Leave reminds movie buffs of Hitchcock, the drama Living will remind them of Kurosawa, it's a British remake of To Live, Kurosawa's Japanese portrait of a bureaucrat who doesn't look for purpose in his life Daniel Wright. until a doctor tells him his life is almost over. If only to be alive for one day. But I realize it. I don't know how. Bill Nye's character learns to make a joyful noise without ever raising his voice. And rounding out the top ten, The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's fictionalized account of his own childhood and his discovery, with a little help from his mom, that the world, even his model train set, looks different through the lens of a movie camera. We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. The Fablemans qualifies as Spielberg's most heartfelt film, which is saying something. 10 is an arbitrary number, so I'm going to breeze right past it. Spielberg wasn't alone in celebrating the silver screen, while a lot of people are watching films on home screens. La La Land's Damien Chazelle gives us a three-hour bacchanalian comedy about Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties called Babylon. Where do you say we come in for my close-up now? While he's looking at the Twenties, director Jordan Peele has a fresh take on 1950s sci-fi in the genre-expanding alien invasion flick, Nope. No, 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 no. You guys gonna tell me what's going on? Hell no. no. Also looking at film itself, the documentary Three Minutes, A Lengthening, which does a fascinating deep dive into some rediscovered pre-World War II footage, and No Bears, in which filmmaker Jafar Panahi, who spent the last decade banned from making movies in Iran, plays a director named Jafar Panahi, who's making a film just outside Iran. Panahi was recently imprisoned by Iranian authorities, so No Bears registers as a cinematic protest. Also from Iran, Asghar Farhadi's caustic social commentary, A Hero, about a man who becomes a celebrity after seeming to do a good deed. There's also a caustic French commentary, Happening, in which a college student seeks an abortion, harrowing in the 1960s and sadly feeling way too current for comfort. 
Meanwhile, parents and children are centered in the eerie thriller Nanny about a woman caring for a youngster in New York so she can bring her own child from Senegal. Very soon, Lamin. Always very soon. And the warm but wrenching After Sun about a dad on vacation with his 11-year-old daughter. You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whenever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take. Family and youth are also front and center in one of the year's most intriguing sci-fi films, an eco-fable in which humans seem hell-bent on destroying an entire planet. No, not the one that has tall blue folks with tails. A little indie flick called Vesper, after the 13-year-old who's trying to fix a bioengineering disaster that's wiped out all of the world's crops. We need to find a key to unlock the seeds. Make them fertile. So we never starve again. Vesper, made for a fraction of what Avatar probably spent on catering, uses mostly practical effects to deliver its environmental message, which is not to diss what James Cameron accomplished with a $400 million budget, motion capture critters floating in digitized water that may not be wet, but that's satisfyingly drenched with symbolism. Skip the plot, check out the visuals, and let's say we count The Way of Water as the year's most persuasive animated film. That'll round out a second 10. Not bad for a year that Hollywood spent playing catch-up. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. During the holiday stretch, the news is here, along with stories, conversations, and reflections as we wrap up 2022. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4:29 and ahead on all things considered, the COVID surge in China, also the anniversary of the James Webb Space Telescope. It is 32 degrees in Boston and temperatures will drop into the mid 20s overnight. For Tuesday, mostly sunny, tomorrow's highs in the mid 30s. Wednesday mostly cloudy and temperatures in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The loss of parental rights can be the ultimate punishment from a court. I'm not a perfect mom. I don't think there is a perfect mom, but my kids are loved. An NPR investigation reveals that despite new federal rules, a little-known debt for foster care could still delay a parent from reuniting with their child for years. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. At least 25 people are known dead in western New York as the Buffalo area battles one of the worst weather-related disasters in its history. Victims have been found in their cars, homes, and in snowbanks. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown. It is uh, painful uh, to find members of your community that are deceased, uh, those that are deceased, uh, actually uh, on streets in our community who were trying to walk out during storm conditions, got disoriented, 
and passed away out in the street. Across the nation, acute freezing conditions created by the so-called bomb cyclone have led to some 50 deaths. Holiday travel disruptions continued today when airlines canceled more than 2,500 flights as of early afternoon. According to flight tracking website FlightAware, the hardest hit was Southwest Airlines. 15,000 power customers near Tacoma, Washington, are no longer in the dark after repairs to substations attacked early Christmas Day. The states of Oregon and Washington have experienced several grid attacks in recent weeks. Hundreds of people marched through the streets of Paris today to mourn the shootings of three Kurds on Christmas weekend. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. The solemn marchers say they're sad and angry but expect justice and the truth. Many in the French Kurdish community and at least one prominent left-wing politician believe the shooting could be politically motivated by Turkey. They're calling for a terrorist investigation. The three Kurds were shot Friday in a Kurdish cultural center just as the community prepares to commemorate the killing of three Kurdish female activists 10 years ago. Ankara is protesting what it calls anti-Turkish propaganda in France. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Wall Street is closed for this Monday holiday. Markets in Europe and some Asian cities also closed. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The nearly 70-year-old Brattle Theater in Harvard Square will get a major upgrade in the new year. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more. The Brattle is known for showing classic films and for its vintage art house vibe. Now the only independent nonprofit cinema in Cambridge is about to install a state-of-the-art surround sound system. Creative director Ned Hinkle says he's wanted to make this project a reality since taking charge of the theater in 2001. We were hoping that we were going to be able to do it last year, but the supply chain issues stymied uh, the delivery of certain components but it looks like we're headed for a January installation, so that's great. Hinkle says the Brattles Foundation has raised half the money needed to fund the project. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Massachusetts plans to ramp up its newly created Office of Outdoor Recreation in the new year. The office was established earlier this month to promote the outdoor recreational opportunities in the state, such as boating, hiking, and skiing. Beth Card is Massachusetts Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs, and she says the health benefits of outdoor recreation are obvious, but also there are environmental benefits. When people get outside and see the natural resources that we have here in Massachusetts, they grow such an appreciation for them, and that causes them to want to protect them. And Card says the state's outdoor recreation economy grew 24 percent from 2020 to 2021, accounting for more than 93,000 jobs in Massachusetts last year. Severe weather around the country is affecting travel at Logan Airport in Boston today. The flight tracking website FlightAware indicates Logan has had 73 cancellations and more than 220 delays today. Yesterday, Logan had more than 80 cancellations and more than 300 delays. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avangrid, a clean energy company committed to accelerating Massachusetts climate goals by investing in offshore wind and hydroelectric energy designed to power 2 million homes every day and help reduce carbon emissions by 7 million tons, believing that acting on climate change can't wait. 
It is 32 degrees in Boston, overnight lows dropping to the mid-20s. You can expect mostly sunny skies tomorrow, Tuesday's temperatures in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. For nearly three years, China focused on keeping the virus outside of its borders. But now COVID is spreading largely unchecked across the country, leaving hospitals filled and medical resources scarce. In Beijing, so many people are ill, there aren't enough ambulances. NPR's Emily Fang brings us this report. Inside this Beijing hospital, the mood is panicked and the doctors frantic, but order prevails. This man, surnamed Zhang, was anxiously pacing outside the critical care ward. He says his 75-year-old father came down with COVID a few days ago and his blood oxygen levels plummeted. They called for an ambulance, but they were all busy fetching other sick patients. After driving his father himself to the hospital, doctors, he said, were doing a last-minute operation to save his father. Another woman, Miss Ye, said the ambulance system was so overtaxed, emergency services initially warned it would be a four-hour wait to get to the hospital. Eventually, she made it with her 96-year-old mother who is sick with COVID. She lies in a bed in the hospital lobby next to more than a dozen other elderly patients. The people interviewed in this story didn't want to give their full names because the extent of how bad the current COVID surge is is politically sensitive. For example, China's National Health Commission said over the weekend it was no longer going to release daily infection data, something it's done for nearly three years. In the last few weeks, it was only recording a few thousand cases a day. Local health authorities directly contradicted these numbers. The city of Qingdao said it alone was seeing half a million cases daily. Zhejiang province warned it had one million people falling sick a day, and that would double soon. You see that yellow gurney, asks Miss Ye. I saw it take away two people who died last night. Another person next to me died today. Crowded hospitals and a wave of deaths from COVID. These kinds of scenes played out tragically across the world starting in 2020. Only now is China going through the same. That's put a sudden immense strain on its healthcare system, hurting patients whether or not they have COVID. A man surnamed Li sits in the emergency room next to his elderly father, who he says has cerebral thrombosis, a blood clot near his brain. Immediate treatment could mean a full recovery for his father. But they've been waiting on the floor for five days now for help. Without even a bed, he says, the doctors have been too busy. China had stayed locked down since 2020, buying authorities time to prepare its healthcare system for the inevitable surge in cases as more infectious variants spread. 
but it did little to prepare, instead throwing most of its resources into maintaining costly lockdowns. Roughly a third of its citizens above 80 years old have not gotten their booster shots because of widespread vaccine hesitancy and confusing government messaging. And only this month did China say it's speeding up its purchases of medical supplies like ventilators and antivirals. It's too little, too late. This exhausted emergency room nurse says they've just gotten a dozen or so new ambulances this week, driving nonstop so they can handle transporting the increased volume of patients, mostly with COVID. They've asked authorities to give them more ambulances, but they're still in the midst of procuring them. The nurse says there are no free beds left, and they're now recommending families bring their own gurneys and wheelchairs. The hospital doesn't have enough, and COVID patients will need to lie on the floor. Emily Fang, NPR News. One year ago, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST as it's known for short, rocketed into space. And liftoff. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. JWST launched on Christmas Day and then was a present that took about six months to unwrap. And that unwrapping process was one of the most fun and exhausting and exhilarating times of my life. Jane Rigby is the telescope's operations project scientist. That unwrapping she's referring to is the nerve-wracking unfurling of the telescope's sunshade and mirror once it reached space. Things went smoothly, and ever since, the telescope has been wowing the world with unprecedented views of planets, stars, and galaxies, both near and very, very far. We're studying, you know, where stars are forming in these galaxies in ways that just are, like, laughably not possible with any other telescope. In addition to revealing the life cycle of stars, the telescope has trained its eye on objects right in our cosmic backyard, like the planet Neptune. JWST astronomer Heidi Hamill recalls when she saw the telescope's first photo of the icy giant. I was so emotional. I I first started crying, and then I started shouting and calling all my relatives to come look at this picture of JWST's image of Neptune. The image shows a system of crystal clear rings circling Neptune, which itself appears as a ghostly glowing orb. Hamill says it's the first full view of the planet's rings in decades since NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft flew by in 1989. Even the JWST's predecessor, Hubble, wasn't up to the task. Hubble Space Telescope tried hard, um, but with JWST, with just a few short images, uh, boom, the ring systems just pop right out, and they're just gorgeous. Other astronomers like Brant Robertson at the University of California, Santa Cruz, have been using the telescope to see further back in time than we've ever been able to, to galaxies born during the very beginnings of the universe. 13.4 billion years ago, these galaxies had formed. Robertson says that while he had a sense of what was out there not long after the Big Bang, the telescope provided never-before-seen details. So it's like opening a book that you've, you know, wanted to know the ending of for a long time, but have been holding off on reading that concluding paragraph 
and then finally seeing the, the, the full story revealed to you. And the telescope still has many more stories to tell. According to Jane Rigby, the project scientist we heard from earlier. We are studying planets in our own solar system, atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars, how stars form and how they die, how they explode, galaxies like our own Milky Way. The project's science mission is set to last at least five years, but Rigby says it has enough propellant on board to last much longer, perhaps even 20 years. We actually at this point don't know what will limit the lifetime of this amazing new telescope. It's still so young, Um, but we fully expect at this point to get a long and productive science lifetime out of this telescope. Meaning new discoveries could be beaming down for many years to come. We've collected some of the gorgeous images the James Webb Space Telescope has captured in its first year since launch, and you can see them right now at npr.org. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Last night was the eighth and final night of Hanukkah. Children's book author Erica Pearl imagines, what if there were nine? A couple years ago, I spoke with her about her picture book, The Ninth Night of Hanukkah. In the story, Rachel and Max move into a new apartment with their parents. They can't find the box that has the family's menorah, dreidel, and other stuff for the holiday. So what do they do? Well, they're they're poised to have the worst Hanukkah ever. They're in a new apartment, they know no one, and they can't find a single thing they need for the holiday, and the holiday has just begun. But as it turns out, all around them are neighbors, and they start reaching out and find that even though apparently no one that they meet in their building celebrates Hanukkah, there are generous people who can offer them sort of stand-in items. Yeah, that's key. The people helping them out are not sharing a menorah or a latka recipe. These are people who might not even be familiar with the holiday at all. Correct. So they end up with a box of birthday candles, for example, instead of Hanukkah candles, a bag of chocolate chips instead of chocolate gelt, and they cobble it together night after night with the help of their neighbors. And so at the end of this week of improvising and making do, the kids come up with a plan to thank their neighbors for all their help, and this changes thousands of years of tradition. (laughs) Kind of. I mean, we we respect all that. But they see an opportunity. Basically, they realize that Hanukkah has ended, the eighth night has passed, but they look at their menorah, their Hanukkah, and they realize that there's this candle that has been helping every single night, the shamash candle. It's the one that lights the other candles. And just like their neighbors have helped them. And so they want to say thank you to their neighbors and thank you to the shamash and kind of give a special night to those who help. How did you come up with the idea of... A night to honor the helper, the worker, the, the one who makes everything else happen. Well, you know, my kids were actually the inspiration for this book. And one year we were celebrating Hanukkah and they said, you know, it's just not fair that the shamash candle works every single night and never gets to be the center of attention. And that struck me as strange and funny and, and also kind of relevant, meaningful. So I started working on it. I know you wrote this before the pandemic, but this idea of recognizing the helpers and the workers and also of improvising when holiday traditions are not what you planned, they, they both seem particularly relevant. Yeah, it's it's been kind of amazing. It's a, it's a nice 
obviously it's a, it's a really challenging time. It's a really hard time. But so many people have stepped up in little ways and big ways, you know, without fanfare to help each other. And so the the message of the book, it feels more relevant than ever in this time when we really are realizing that helping isn't just nice. It's it's necessary to our happiness and our survival. Another Hebrew word that some people might be familiar with is dayenu, which means enough. <laughs> isn't eight days enough? Do we really need to add a ninth? <laughs> Well, I mean, I personally feel that, you know, you can have latkes night after night after night and they just don't get old. I think it's a beautiful night for for Jews and for non-Jews to come together and to realize how nice it is to light candles and to connect across the season. And if we need an extra night to say thank you to those who have helped, they certainly deserve it. So I'm not going to say Dayanu quite yet. I'm just going (laughs) to, you know, thank the helpers in my life, of which there are many. So if people do want to start a new Ninth Night tradition, what are your suggestions? Well, it's really easy. And the beautiful part about this is it works very well on Zoom or with, you know, even if we can't physically be together and light candles together, we can just just even saying the words, just telling someone what they've meant to you and how they've helped you is really an incredible thing to do. Writing a note and, you know, with kids, you can draw pictures and make cards um, and share them with people who have helped you. And the cool thing is that in that way, you also get to be like the Shamash too, because you're sharing your light in the same way that people have shared theirs with you. It's reciprocal. That's Erica Pearl, author of the children's picture book, The Ninth Night of Hanukkah, with illustrations by Shahar Kober. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.38, and just ahead on All Things Considered... The Museum of Secrets, also considering the Hulu adaptation of the novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. Coming to WBUR City Space, January 25th, journalist and historian Dart Adams discusses his book, Instead We Became Evil, about the life of Danish rapper Sliman. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It is 32 degrees in Boston with lows dipping to the mid-20s overnight. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny Tuesday and highs in the mid-30s. Wednesday should be mostly cloudy and temperatures in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. Until the mid-1970s, the average American had no clue the National Security Agency even existed. Now the NSA is in its 70th year and unveiling renovations inside its public museum near agency headquarters in Maryland. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin got a tour. 
They're still not used to them opening on their own. The doors swing open as the director of the newly refurbished National Cryptologic Museum welcomes us. Every so often they'll bring someone like me in from the outside. Uh, they don't do it very often because we usually come in and, and cause trouble. Vince Houghton is quick to laughter with a smile and a short haircut reminiscent of his military days. He's excited to finally show off what he's been working on while the world was shut down during the pandemic. I'm actually pushing the buttons on the Enigma. You might remember the World War II movie with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Alan Turing. Welcome to Enigma. It's the greatest encryption device in history. The Germans use it for all major communications. In the film The Imitation Game, Turing is holed up in Bletchley Park trying to crack the Nazi code. Houghton has his quibbles with that movie. He's a historian's historian. But he's excited he gets to show off the genuine artifact captured from the Germans. Looks kind of like a fancy typewriter. Well, it's what Enigma is. We have kids coming here all the time going, why are there all the typewriters on this? I'm surprised kids know what a typewriter looks like in the first place. It's not uh, just it's kids who are fascinated. Rupert Sims, one museum patron, was enthralled. It's awesome because to me it's, it's, it's a revelation. He's here on a Friday afternoon date with his girlfriend. You know, I knew that there was a lot of secret communication going on all during the war, First World War, Second World War, and so on. I had no sense that it was as sophisticated as it truly is. Sims isn't alone. A lot of the details shared here are pretty revelatory, especially since the U.S. government barely even acknowledged NSA existed until the 70s. They earned their nickname, No Such Agency. You know, we are no such agency. We are an agency that does things in secret. But after years of embarrassing and damaging leaks, on top of congressional oversight, the NSA was forced to step out of the shadows. Houghton was brought over from the International Spy Museum with a mandate. The museum is, is part of this mission of NSA to increase the people's trust of the agency. Part of that is explaining what they actually do. The NSA has been in charge of intercepting digital signals since World War II, from radio transmissions to emails. But then they have to actually figure out what those messages say. So that's a lot of what we're focused on here at the museum is code making and code breaking. This museum has technically been here since the 90s, but with aging carpets and exhibits, it was in real need of a refresh. That gave Houghton and his team a chance to push the boundaries. So this entire wall is focused on nuclear command and control. Houghton means the actual machines that would have been key to launching a nuclear weapon until very recently. Until about three months ago, they were never outside of NSA. It's a move that stunned experts in the field. Dr. Jeffrey Lewis at the Middlebury Institute in Monterey can hardly believe that the NSA decided to put it on display. I, I was shocked because that kind of information is something that the U.S. government has always been incredibly uncomfortable about sharing. Just from looking at it, you wouldn't know how powerful these machines are. To our right is what we call the MP37. The MP37 is the server and machine that created the biscuit. The biscuit. That's the card bearing the president's personal nuclear codes. The machines are unremarkable giant black boxes with knobs and buttons. We call the sealed authenticator system, or the SAS. But once Houghton starts talking specifics, it gets pretty chilling. The cards that are inside, the nuclear silos, the submarines, the bombers, that ensures that a message to start World War III comes from the president or whoever is the national command authority at that time. For the NSA to share all this, Jeffrey Lewis says the agency must have changed the whole system. 
But he thinks including these machines in the museum is a real step towards transparency. I strongly suspect that more openness is is a good thing. But that doesn't change the fact that this must have been a very unnatural act for the people involved. Meanwhile, some of the stuff in the museum, Houghton and his colleagues had no clue what they even were at first. We stand in front of a large object with the code name Russian Fish. It's a device created by the Germans to listen in on Soviet communications. To me, it looks like a combination between a giant steamer trunk and like a Mad Max stereo or something. Yeah, it really does have that kind of beyond Thunderdome look to it where uh, it's very, you know, 1940s technology. It's solid steel. And you look at it and go, I don't know what this was for. Intense archival research helped the team uncover the Russian fish from the bowels of history, also known as the NSA's giant warehouse. No, actually, they really have a giant warehouse where NSA employees over the years stash things, hoping one day those things might become declassified. Everyone thinks jokes like, ah, it's like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, it's like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's floor to ceiling crates that are deteriorating because they were sent back there in 1945. To me, it was like every day was Christmas because I'm such a nerd about this stuff. In a different kind of transparency, the museum also wants to highlight pioneers of cryptology who have previously gone overlooked, especially women and people of color. In early 1943, Juanita Morris at a small college in North Carolina wished to contribute to the war effort and volunteered at the nearest recruiting office. Juanita Morris worked for over 30 years at the NSA. That included overseeing intelligence gathering efforts at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The museum doesn't just celebrate successes in U.S. intelligence. Under a glass case, Houghton shows us a notebook kept by a Navy cryptologist turned spy for the KGB named John Walker. It's open to an entry from May 17, 1985. And you can see that that is the last entry in the notebooks because Walker was never to see freedom again at that point. Walker got caught, but not Edward Snowden. The infamous NSA contractor gave journalists a massive trove of secret documents about the agency's global spy programs in 2013. Where is Ed Snowden? An international manhunt is underway to find the man who leaked some of the U.S. government's biggest secrets. Snowden's disclosures about NSA collecting Americans' phone records changed the law and the world. But you won't see his name here at the museum. Houghton argues that's because the story isn't over. Snowden fled to Russia, where he now has citizenship. Meanwhile, the NSA still considers the documents Snowden leaked to be classified. Privacy advocates might be frustrated that whistleblowers like Snowden aren't included here. But Houghton says the museum is about cryptography, not the agency itself. Now, it's not really a cryptographic story, right? It's not Edward Snowden didn't break codes. Then again, you can buy shot glasses, stuffed animals, t-shirts, and more in the gift shop with the NSA logo on your way out. Being able to push the buttons, that's kind of fun, yeah. Another museum visitor, Tony Flanagan, plays with the Enigma machine. He's fascinated with the artifacts on display, and maybe just a bit dumbstruck. It makes me realize uh, how little I know. I guess that's kind of the point of museums, to teach you just how little you know and inspire you to do some digging yourself. Jen McLaughlin, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by professional pastry arts at BU's programs in food and wine, teaching the classic and advanced techniques behind making the perfect flaky, buttery treats. Study with world-class bakers and learn what it takes to launch a food-related career in just 14 weeks. More at bu.edu slash foodandwine slash pastry. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Hisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Malcolm Alexander and Frederick Clay spent decades in prison after wrongful convictions, and they discuss what it means to receive monetary compensation after exoneration. It is Monday, December 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Flying on a private jet is among the most carbon-intensive things you can do, and it comes at the expense of people living near airports. I was like, cover your nose, run to the car, get in the car, shut the door. We couldn't breathe because of the, the jet fumes. Also, a decade ago, psychedelic research was mostly outside the scientific mainstream, but that is changing now. When you start seeing large trials showing effects, then the skeptics now are even jumping on board. It's 501 Versus News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The powerful winter storm that hit much of the country this weekend has left nearly 50 people dead nationwide. Snow continues to fall in western New York as the death toll there passes at least two dozen. Thousands are still without power, and the state's governor, Kathy Hochul, acknowledges today growing impatience with the emergency response in that area. And Piers Brian Mann has more. Power is slowly being restored across Buffalo, but many families are still enduring cold and dark. Governor Hochul asked people to hold on while first responders and electrical crews do their jobs. It is you know, exasperating. And you're just saying, when is this going to end? I understand that pain and that frustration intensely. And we'll be getting through this together very soon. I feel confident of that. Other parts of New York, from the North Country on the Canadian border to central New York near Pennsylvania, are also digging out from the winter storm, with travel still limited in many areas. Communities near Lake Ontario could see three more feet of snow by Tuesday afternoon. Brian Mann, NPR News in upstate New York. China is moving much closer toward reopening to the rest of the world after nearly three years of sealed borders. Beijing now says it's dropping all COVID-19 quarantine requirements for incoming international travelers and will start reissuing some visas. And Piers Emily Fang has more. 
Since March 2020, China has been almost totally cut off from the rest of the world. It also canceled old visas and stopped issuing new ones. Now, all that is being scrapped starting January 8th. That's when China's National Health Commission says it will reclassify COVID-19 as a less severe pandemic and suspend emergency regulations that allowed it to contact trace and lock down at whim. Inbound travelers will only have to present a negative test before traveling to China, and China will allow those studying or working in China to apply for new visas. China is currently going through a massive surge in infections, with millions falling ill a day, according to local authorities. Emily Fang, NPR News. When Republicans take control of the House this uh, next year, they plan to push back on companies that consider climate risks when investing. NPR's Michael Copley reports that could hurt efforts to deal with climate change. A lot of investors want to know how rising temperatures will impact companies they give money to, whether it's rising sea levels or stricter regulation. It's part of a practice known as environmental, social, and governance investing, or ESG. The idea is you can make more money long term by considering a broader range of risks. But Republicans say it's just an attempt to impose liberal policies, including starving fossil fuel companies of money. Red states have pulled money from at least one big investor over the issue. Financial experts say the political backlash could make investors think twice about taking aggressive action to limit global warming. Michael Copley, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston public school officials are considering a temporary indoor mask requirement when students return from winter break. The goal involves preventing a spike in COVID-19 cases in the school system. Krista Magnuson is a BPS parent and part of a group pushing for the two-week mandate in the new year. She says the requirement could help mitigate another surge of infection following a busy season of holiday travel. And while some folks are masking, many, many are not. And so all that travel and that mixing between cities and and different uh, communities is going to mean an increased rate of not just COVID, but flu and RSV and all those those other things that are making up this so-called triple-demic. Superintendent Mary Skipper says any new COVID-related requirements will be announced this week. Upcoming first night celebrations in Boston will expand into New Year's Day 2023. The traditional New Year's Eve events kicks off at noon on Saturday, December 31st, and includes the first night Boston parade, fireworks and light shows. Local artists also will perform on New Year's Eve in Copley Square on Boston Common and in surrounding churches. New this year? Live performances will take place on January 1st in front of the main branch of the Boston Public Library beginning at 11 a.m. You might have seen the signs over Massachusetts highways advertising that the state needs plow truck drivers. State officials say they are still short of the number of drivers they hope to have clearing snow off the roads and do not expect to close the gap by the time winter is over. Jonathan Gulliver is the state highway administrator, and he says staffing issues at companies are adding to the shortage of plows, and so is the climate. The, uh, the winters are just different now than they were even 10 years ago. You don't have the consistent snowfall throughout the season as we used to. Instead, you have uh, pretty wide gaps with, with not a lot of precipitation and then some really intense storms, which for a vendor is not a really great combination. Gulliver says he expects to have enough equipment in the fleet to keep roads safe this winter. Some Celtics fans perusing Twitter got a brief scare after yesterday's victory. Last night, Marcus Smart tweeted, I've had enough, been holding it in too long, and it's about time this gets said. It's time for me to leave. 
It turns out the Celtics point guard was playing prankster with his choice of this approach to announce his engagement to his longtime girlfriend. Smart went on to tweet, oh, I forgot the rest. Time for me to leave the single life. She said yes. It's 32 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 20s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and highs in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Thousands of incarcerated people in the U.S. have fought to prove their innocence and won. In some cases, getting released from prison marks the start of another fight, a fight for compensation for the years spent behind bars. So we, we could call each other. Okay, that sounds great. Yes, we could make plans. Malcolm Alexander and Frederick Clay both spent nearly 38 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Both were ultimately exonerated and released, but that's where their stories diverge. Fred got a million dollars from the state of Massachusetts for his wrongful conviction. In Louisiana, Malcolm is still fighting for compensation. When we got the two of them on the line together, I asked how it felt to meet a stranger who's been in their shoes. Well, I would say this shadow of Fred. You know, in the process that we both have just went through, our daily in our life, it, to me, you know, it was like standing in front of a loaded gun, you know, and being told that they give me everything you have, and after you cooperate in every possible way, you still became that fatal victim. Mm. And this is what I would say that me and Fred and many others have experienced. You're saying that's what the justice system felt like to you? Exactly. Fred, do you relate to that that metaphor? Yes, I do. Because the justice system, in my experience, doesn't really care about people being innocent. They only care about getting convictions and patent a resume. Let's talk about the financial compensation aspect of this. I mean, money can't make up for the decades that you spent incarcerated. Fred, what can money do? What can the compensation achieve for you? Well, it, it can achieve a little bit more stability. It can give people a little bit more independence, whether people want to get into a apartment or buy a car or get education, you know, they can spend some of that money on education. It, it gives people a little bit more uh, flexibility to do what they want to do on their own. Malcolm, I understand you live with your wife and the dog that you raised behind bars named In, short for innocence. If you do get this financial compensation, apart from the necessities that this could help pay for, is there any luxury, just some small thing for pleasure that you would use that money for, for yourself, for them? Well, the thing is, I have been working since I've been out. And my wife, she was work as well. And my dog, you know, we had recently brought her to get a, uh, 
her technic shot. And right now, you know, I'm really putting a few dollars on the side again to bring her, because I want to get a groom. I need to get her toenails, uh, at least uh, her paws cut. And I I built a doghouse, and I must have didn't build it too sturdy, because uh, we just had that storm up there, Ina, and it blew the doghouse apart. Uh, I said, wow. Well, if it <laughs> makes know? you feel better, that storm blew some proper houses down too so i'm not sure it's any comment on your carpentry <laughs> so i was sitting going out and really trying to uh get me some bricks and you know and actually build her a brick dog house so if you do win this case in is going to be much better off for it a trip to the groomer a new house in's going to be living the good life yes sir <laughs> fred was there something after you got that compensation from the state that you treated yourself to Yes, I treated myself to jumping out of a plane. Oh my, you went skydiving? Yes. Seriously? I did that twice. Twice? Wow. That is not what I expected you to say. So when I got the money, I treated myself to skydiving. I think I would pay to not do that. <laughs> was it was it worth it? Yes, it was. Why was that the thing you chose? There's a couple of reasons. It made me feel like I was totally free. And also when I was in prison and I was talking to some guys, we watched things on WGBH Channel 2 about skydiving. They say they wanted to do that. I said that I wanted to do that. So it, it was because it, some of these people that I talked to are no longer living now. They passed away. Hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm doing this for such and such a person i'm doing this for me but wow the second time i did it it was more for me jump out of a plane ten thousand feet in the air it made me actually feel like i was truly free hmm. Fred, i can relate to that because i want to go bungee jumping <laughs> go you on I want to do that, too. I haven't done that yet, but I want to do that, too. I think you guys should go together. <laughs> that would be nice. But I, definitely, I didn't want to skydive, but I actually wanted to go bungee jumping, and I wanted to go over to the Grand Canyon where you can walk out on that glass floor and look down at the Grand Canyon. And like yeah. I say, it's a feeling of totally freedom, like floating. Yes. Mm. I can relate to that, you know. I also did hang gliding too. What? That's nice. Wow. And it gave me, it, it made me feel like I had a, a bird's eye view of the world looking down and it, it made me feel free. Hmm. Totally free. You guys are braver than I am. <laughs> well, you've both overcome an enormous hurdle, which is proving your innocence and getting released from prison, setting apart, setting aside the compensation question. If there are people listening who are still incarcerated and still working on achieving that step, what advice do you have for them? Mine would be to never give up. I mean, what, what it is to give up on, you know, you give, because you got to understand, you didn't do it. And you have family members 
who believe in the fact that you didn't do it. You have friends who believe in it. You have a community that who believes in it. It's just that the justice system is, like you say, it just doesn't work all the time properly, you know, and, you, and innocent, you being innocent proves that. But the thing is, if you give up, you got to realize it's not you just giving up on yourself, you giving up on your family. Because mm -hmm. like you said, you're, you're not the only one that's incarcerated. They have incarcerated your family. So, you know, you fighting, you fighting, you fight not just for you, you fight for your family, you fight to get back with your loved one. Yeah. You know, you fight to show that, no, you is wrong. Fred, what do you think of that? I agree with what he said, never give up. Uh, when you do give up, not only you letting yourself down, you're letting your family down, but I would also add to the situations that not only the perpetrator, me or you or, in, or gentlemen I'm talking to now or anybody else, not only were we lied on, the victim family was lied to also. I would also say that because I have a relationship with the victim family right now. His brother, I met with him and his wife like three or four times already. Went out, you know, went out to dinner, even went to uh, a retreat with them. But I would also say that the victim family needs to have a little bit more input because the victim family is, from my point of view, from my experience, the victim family can only make the district attorney accountable. Mm -hmm. I cannot make them accountable. You know, I asked at the beginning of this conversation whether there was anything you wanted to say to each other. You really didn't know each other at all at that point. Now that you've gotten a chance to get to know each other and chat a little bit, is there any parting thought you want to share with one another? Well, I will say I'm glad Fred made it. I'm glad he has gotten the chance to do the things that he wanted to do and even more to come. And uh, he proved to me to be me, you know, in the sense of saying, you know, regardless of how many years I may have done or how long I may, was there, I never gave up hope. I never stopped fighting, you know. And so to that, you know, I applaud him. Hmm. I'm glad you're home, man. Hmm. I'm glad you're home, too. And I want to applaud you, even though we had setbacks, you know, uh, pursuing our litigations and trying to, you know, uh, do what we need to do to prove our innocence. I'm glad that you had due diligence. I'm glad that you didn't give up. You might probably got discouraged just like I did. I got discouraged at different times, but I'm glad that once we get past our disappointments, we still stuck to maintain our innocence and continue to fight. Frederick Clay in Massachusetts and Malcolm Alexander in Louisiana, both men were wrongfully convicted and spent decades in prison before being exonerated. Thank you both so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. And after we finished the interview, the two men exchanged phone numbers to follow up on that bungee jumping plan. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518. And coming up on All Things Considered, looking back at a rocky 2022 for social media companies. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. In business news, the TSA says it screened 180,000 passengers at New England's six largest airports this weekend. That's about 39,000 fewer than the prior weekend. Thursday, December 22nd was also a busy travel day with over 82,000 passengers screened at New England's airports. This is WBUR. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars and thanks. Stay informed about a wide range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app whenever, wherever. It is 31 degrees in Boston, lows overnight, dipping to the mid-20s. And for Tuesday, mostly sunny skies. Tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-30s. Wednesday should be mostly cloudy and highs reaching the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. Commercial airlines have cut down on flights during the pandemic, but private jet flights have increased. This luxury for the nation's wealthiest comes at the environmental expense of people living near airports. Kaylee Wells of member station KCRW reports. The wealth gap is especially visible here in Van Nuys, a dense working-class neighborhood home to one of the busiest general aviation airports in the country. Among those protesting the increased flights here is sociology professor Karen Morgan. You have the 1% using this airport in a working class neighborhood disproportionately affecting the environment right now in this neighborhood in addition to increasing the impact on the climate. Although it's convenient for the wealthy, private jet travel is also one of the most carbon intensive things a person can do, spewing about two metric tons of carbon every hour. The people living in Van Nuys are mostly renters, majority Latino, and households here typically make less than $60,000 per year. That's roughly the cost of a round-trip private flight from L.A. to New York. Suzanne Gutierrez-Hedges lives nearby, and she's worried about how those flights are affecting her kids' health. Just this morning, as we're walking outside to take my kids to school and getting in the car, I was like, cover your nose, run to the car, get in the car, shut the door. We couldn't breathe because of the, the jet fumes, and it happens all the time. Gutierrez Hedges recorded the jets flying over her daughter's school one day. She counted four of them in nine minutes. KCRW contacted 11 jet companies operating out of Van Nuys multiple times. Two declined to comment. The rest never responded. 
The Van Nuys Airport supports 10,000 jobs and says it contributes more than $2 billion to the area economy. Earlier this year, it improved the runway and let private companies build new hangars. So traffic has increased. But Samantha Bricker with Los Angeles World Airport says the air traffic itself isn't in the airport's hands. We can't regulate the number of flights coming into Van Nuys. We can't institute a cap. We have no ability to close down the airport at a certain hour. Those are just things that are not allowed under FAA regulations. The FAA said in a statement that they work with airports to address community concerns. They also said they'd review plane operation restrictions at Van Nuys if Los Angeles World Airports ever proposed any. The airport is offering cleaner jet fuel and requesting that planes not fly at night to curb noise and pollution, but those moves are only voluntary. So just how bad is the air in Van Nuys? Actually, we don't know. Bricker says the latest local study on the airport was done 17 years ago, and there's no plan to do another one. Most of the pollution was coming from roadway vehicle emissions as the highest source of pollutants, and it was not the aircraft. And so, you know, there has not been a need for a new study because the feeling was that the findings for that study are still relevant. The airport makes that argument even though private jet travel has increased 15 percent since the pandemic and cars have gotten cleaner. The EPA did study toxic lead levels five years ago. Van Nuys was the seventh worst airport in the country, with more than twice as many people living nearby than any of the other most polluted airports. Only the federal government can regulate airplane emissions, and those don't go into effect until 2028. But resident Suzanne Gutierrez-Hedges says she and her kids couldn't leave this polluted neighborhood even if they wanted to. And where would we move to? Like, we couldn't afford another house here in Los Angeles. Because like a lot of people in Southern California, the only home she can afford here is the one she already has. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. The Hulu series Fleischman is in Trouble is about a successful Upper East Side couple whose marriage ends and what happens after that. Like the best-selling novel it's based on, it starts off by telling us one side of the story and then fills in the rest. Glenn Weldon of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour is a fan, and he's here to tell us about it. Hey, Glenn. Hey, great to be here. Uh, okay, so this show is based on a 2019 novel by Taffy Brodesser Ackner, who adapted the series herself. It's a big job. How'd she do? Well, here's where I confess I haven't actually read the novel, uh, but I know for a fact, yet I know for a fact, that this is a great adaptation of it. Ask me how I know that. Okay, Glenn, how do you know that? A great question. Because of how well it uses narration, Ari. Uh, you know, whenever writers adapt their own work into another medium, there's always this tendency for them to keep a white-knuckle grip on their precious, precious prose. You know, they don't want to lose a single sentence. And we've all seen it. We've all seen movies and shows that have this oppressive wall-to-wall narration that is just not doing anything. It's telling us what we're already watching. Here, every time that narration kicks in, it's welcome because Bredesser Ackner saves it for when it can do the most good narrative work, when it can add context or help us see the world as the characters see it. This sounds like a good moment to listen to a clip of the show. Can you give us an example of what you're talking about? Sure. So the marriage that's over when the series starts is between Toby, who's played by Jesse Eisenberg, and Rachel, who's played by Claire Danes. Uh, The narrator is Libby, played by Lizzie Kaplan. Now, she's an old friend of Toby's, so at first she takes his side completely, and as a result, because she's telling us the story, so do we. And the first episode opens, in fact, with Libby showing us the marriage in flashback, Purely from Toby's perspective, he's remembering how cold and harsh Rachel was now that she's no longer around. She was no longer in the kitchen, griping about her day. I'm going to have to spend the whole day cleaning up that mess with a lunch I don't even have time for. 
She was no longer just coming home from the gym in a less black mood than usual. It was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. So a strong point of view there as we hear Libby's description of Rachel through Toby's eyes. There are two sides to every story. Uh, Do we ever hear Rachel's perspective? Well, that's the smart thing about the show. We never hear from either Toby or Rachel directly. There is always this intermediary of Libby, the narrator. And, you know, she's got her own marriage she's dealing with or not dealing with in this case because her character is a writer and her fascination with the Fleischmann's marriage is an excuse not to think about her own. That will come to a head eventually. But no, to answer your question, yeah, eventually we do get Rachel's perspective. And that happens just exactly when we need it to because as the show goes, goes on, Libby starts to sense that she's not getting the whole story from Toby. And that's because Rachel uh, has erased herself from the narrative, as we say. She goes missing, actually, from much of the show. But when Libby does finally get to hear from Rachel, she finally starts to tell us Rachel's side of the story and does it with a lot more generosity than she had before. And in the process, we get a more nuanced look at this insular world of privilege that Toby and Rachel live in, one that exists within a few blocks on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. That is a world that Rachel has always ached to be accepted in from a very early age. She understood that it wasn't her lack of money and proximity that made her an outsider. It was that her lack of proximity and money created an outsider's desperation in her. But also, sophistication is a language. You're either born speaking it, or you always speak with an accent. Or you always speak with an accent. That is such smart writing. And and this is where the real genius of the show comes in, Ari, in the casting. Jesse Eisenberg is the perfect guy to play Toby. He can be schlubby and empathetic, but also he has this anger just under the surface that you need. Claire Danes uh, can play Rachel as very severe, even cruel, but she also, as an actor, has the vulnerability that you need to kick in later on in the story. And Lizzie Kaplan's great as the narrator. She's got this intelligence and curiosity that works to bring us all along with her as the full story behind the Fleischmann's marriage gradually comes to light. Okay, so I haven't seen this show, but I'm going to surmise that the takeaway is if the end of The White Lotus Season 2 left you desperate for more stories about rich white people in misery, Fleischmann's in Trouble <laughs> is the one for you. There's plenty of rich white people. There's plenty of misery. Yep. <laughs> it's streaming now on Hulu. And that was Glenn Weldon of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529. And coming up on All Things Considered, researchers are studying how psychedelic drugs may help rewire the brains of people with depression, PTSD, and chronic pain. Also, the Amazon rainforest is the most biodiverse ecosystem on the planet. And scientists there say the best way to experience it may be by listening that and more ahead on All Things Considered. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering Monday, January 30th at WBUR City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 31 degrees in Boston, lows overnight in the mid-20s and tomorrow a mostly sunny Tuesday with highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The New York Times made the decision to pull a group of reporters out of Kyiv and bring them to a city in western Ukraine that was safer, called Lviv. I was one of those reporters. The drive was supposed to take seven hours. 
It took us two days and two nights. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In western New York, at least 25 people are known dead in the aftermath of the so-called bomb cyclone that traveled across much of the nation. Erie County Power says thousands of customers are still in the dark. From member station WAMC, Ian Pickus reports the region has come to a standstill. A driving ban remains in effect in western New York with even more snow in the forecast through Tuesday. Governor Kathy Hochul says the thruway will remain closed in the region until further notice. We still have scores and scores of vehicles that were abandoned when people left during the storm or just in a ditch. They can't possibly get out. We have had snow plows, major snow plows and rescue vehicles. I saw them myself in ditches buried in snow. With a statewide state of emergency still in effect, First responders are also grappling with several feet of snow and frigid temperatures in the Watertown area in northern New York. For NPR News, I'm Ian Pickus in Albany. South Korea is accusing North Korea of a clear provocation by sending drones into its airspace today. Seon Gung reports from Seoul. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the drones were first detected in the sky just outside the capital Seoul. The South military took what it calls corresponding measures near and north of the border with its own aircrafts. Some North Korean drones, according to the military, approached civilian residential areas. Commercial airplane departures from the country's main airport were suspended for an hour. Seon Gung reporting from Seoul. COVID outbreaks continue in China, even as Beijing has stopped posting daily infection numbers. Meanwhile, as of January 8th, international travelers arriving in China now will not be subject to a COVID-19 quarantine requirement. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. This week, the remembrance of the 1890 massacre of Native people at Wounded Knee in South Dakota will be a bit different. That's because a museum in Barrie, Massachusetts, recently returned more than 100 items believed to have been taken off the bodies of people killed. Nancy Cohen reports the Oglala Lakota are also receiving additional items from Barrie. I got a tractor coming up. I need to stop him. That's Chief Henry Redcloud, who negotiated with the Barry Museum in April to get the items back. It had taken decades. Now he's getting ready for something else. The community of Barry went and gathered a lot of stuff. Gloves, stocking caps, blankets. The clothing's being delivered after days of horrific cold. Despite the weather, the plan is to bring the 19th century items back to the massacre site, for prayers. It's unifying people. It's bringing people together. Red Cloud says the items from Barry are only a fraction of what's out there, but getting these back has helped people start to heal. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. For Massachusetts to meet its legally binding climate goals, buildings across the state will need to undergo a massive transformation. Think electric heat instead of gas or oil better insulation, and perhaps solar panels. One building type that could use particular attention is schools. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports that a coalition of education and environmental groups has an idea to help jumpstart the work. If established, the Zero Carbon Renovation Fund would use a portion of the state's remaining COVID relief dollars to help retrofit buildings. 
Sarah Ross of the group Undaunted K-12, says schools in lower-income areas would be a great place to use some of the money. School buildings reflect already patterns of inequity due to our funding formulas. Climate change is going to widen those gaps unless we focus resources on the most vulnerable. Consider a school that needs to upgrade its heating system, Ross says. The money could be used to help pay for the added cost of an electric heat pump, which would be more climate-friendly and better for indoor air quality. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. This is the first day of Kwanzaa. The week-long cultural holiday honors African-American heritage. Celebrations in Boston include three days of festivities associated with the Boston Public Library. The events begin tomorrow and take place at the library's Roxbury, Parker Hill, and Eggleston Square branches. It's 31 degrees in Boston with lows in the mid-20s overnight. A mostly sunny Tuesday. Tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. Over the last year, Facebook burned through billions of dollars trying to make the metaverse happen. Elon Musk spent $44 billion to take control of Twitter, only to see a number of advertisers and users flee. And across Silicon Valley, tens of thousands of workers have been laid off. NPR's Shannon Bond reports on the rocky year that was for social media companies. At the beginning of the year, big social networks were trying fresh starts. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg had renamed his company Meta to signal a new direction. From now on, we're going to be metaverse first, not Facebook first. Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey had handed the reins to a new CEO, Parag Agrawal. Twitter serves a very important role in the world, and we take our responsibility to make it the best it can be very seriously. But within months, things changed dramatically. Amid global economic turmoil and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the online advertising market cratered. Facebook announced its first ever declines in users and sales. The company has lost about two-thirds of its market value this year. Elon Musk made a surprise bid for Twitter, spent months trying to get out of buying it, and then unleashed chaos when he finally took over. Layoffs followed. Facebook parent Meta will begin laying off workers this morning. The parent of Snapchat plans to lay off about 20% of its nearly 6,500 employees starting today. Twitter is reportedly laying off about half of its 7,500 employees today. But it's not just economic and management upheaval that's shifting the foundation these companies have built their businesses on. Social media is entering a new era of fragmentation. Katie Harbath is a former public policy director at Facebook. Users are using them differently. Advertisers are using them differently. People are going to different places to get their entertainment, and advertisers are trying to figure out where those eyeballs are. That shift is epitomized by TikTok, the Chinese-owned short video app. 
Instead of connecting with friends, TikTok is all about seeing the most engaging videos from anyone, anywhere. And that sent companies including Facebook and Google scrambling to copy TikTok's features. There's a shinier object in the social media space, and it doesn't involve your friends and what your friends are up to. Michael Samen is an app developer who's worked at Facebook, Google, and Twitter. TikTok is facing bans by state governments and the federal government, but it's already changed the landscape. Samen says the race to emulate TikTok is pushing the big social media apps to become more like TV networks, where a tiny fraction of users create almost all the content. I think really the money makers in social media and really the profit for these companies is not any more in the business of like friend sharing. That's left many people looking for alternative ways to keep up with friends through messaging services like WhatsApp, Signal and Discord and apps like Be Real, where users post one unedited photo a day that can't be liked or shared. Disillusionment with the legacy social sites has also inspired a new crop of apps by and for conservatives who feel their views are muzzled by Silicon Valley. Now, that partisan fracturing extends to Twitter, where Musk is courting right-wing users and alienating advertisers, employees, and regulators. Harbath says it shows an evolution in how people think about what they share online. You know, the early days of social media, like particularly Facebook, thought that, like, that people have one identity and that they want to share parts of themselves with everybody that's in their lives. And it's actually turning out that that's not the case. Which suggests the next era of social media will be defined not by one mega company, but by connections and content scattered across many apps. Shannon Bond, NPR News. The world of neuroscience is tuning into psychedelic drugs. Researchers are studying how substances like magic mushrooms and ecstasy may help rewire the brains of people with depression, PTSD, and chronic pain. NPR's John Hamilton reports. One of the hottest tickets at this year's Society for Neuroscience meeting in San Diego was a symposium on how psychedelic drugs affect the brain. Stephen Greco, a brain scientist at the University of California, Irvine, helped organize the session. There's probably a thousand or more people there. It seemed like every section and every chair of that entire room was filled up. A decade ago, research on psychedelics was still largely outside the scientific mainstream. But that's changing, says Alex Kwan of the Biomedical Engineering Department at Cornell University. The scientists are catching on now. We just don't know much about what these compounds do, and a lot of interest from young scientists who want to jump into this area. At the meeting, Kwan presented some of his own research, looking at how psychedelic drugs can help brain cells form new connections, a process known as plasticity. What it suggests is that psychedelic seems to elevate that type of plasticity potential to make the brain generate even a bit more connections. For example, a study of mice found that psilocybin altered dendrites, the part of a nerve cell that receives input from other cells. Kwan says psilocybin increased the number of spiny protrusions on dendrites, allowing them to make more connections. When we give mice a single dose of psilocybin, we can see those new connections form within a day, and then they last up to more than just over a month. That long-term rewiring suggests psychedelic drugs won't have to be taken every day, like most current psychiatric medications. Dr. Gita Knudsen, a neurologist at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, told the session that people who get psilocybin for anxiety and depression may only need one dose. The stunning effects of psychedelics is that one or a few single doses can have such long-lasting impact. It could be months or even years. And that is what makes it such an interesting drug to look at. 
But Knudsen says in the first few hours after a dose, the drugs can produce mind-bending effects that are frightening or disturbing. It can be a quite overwhelming experience to people. And for that reason, you need to prepare them for that. And you also need to be with them while they are in the experience. Knudsen says even when patients are prepared, they often have mixed feelings about the sessions. When people have been through a psychedelic experience in my lab, they say, wow, this was amazing. This was just a fantastic experience. And you ask them, well, would you like to come back next week for another session? You say, thank you, but no thank you. Psychedelic research was popular in the 1950s, but pretty much ended in the mid-1960s when governments began outlawing the drugs. In the 1990s, a few researchers began studying how drugs like LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin might help with psychiatric conditions including depression and PTSD. Dr. Joshua Gordon, who directs the National Institute of Mental Health, says just a few years ago, psychedelics got a big boost in credibility. The first study that really piqued everyone's interest was the end-of-life work, right, where you can reduce people's anxiety about end-of-life issues using psychedelics. In 2016, two studies by prominent researchers showed that psilocybin helped people with anxiety and depression associated with a cancer diagnosis. That led to a series of small studies and then some large trials showing that psychedelics really can help with conditions like depression and PTSD. When you start seeing large trials showing effects, then the skeptics now are even jumping on board. But the large studies haven't reproduced the spectacular results seen in some smaller trials. And Gordon says some companies hoping to market psychedelics are overpromising. There is a lot of hype. These drugs are probably going to be beneficial and helpful, but not really transformative drugs. Gordon thinks psychedelics probably won't revolutionize psychiatry, but they may help some people who haven't been helped by anything else. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Amazon is the largest and most biodiverse ecosystem on the planet. And one of the best ways to really experience it may just be to listen to it. Researchers in Brazil credit the power of sound for leading them to new finds, including some of the world's loudest birds. With support from the UN Foundation, NPR's Kirk Sigler traveled to the Amazon to a place called Camp 41 and sent us this audio postcard. Ornithologist Mario Kohnhoff's favorite time of day is just before dawn. Here on the equator, he can hear the jungle waking up. Rain drips onto tree leaves the size of tennis rackets. You know, in a dark, tall, complexly layered rainforest, it's very hard to see creatures. And the real window into what's going on is sound. A chorus of tree frogs sings. Other frogs hide in the leaf litter on the soaked ground. Yeah, it's singing right now from the okay. forest floor. Sounds like a cricket. Kohnhoff works for Brazil's National Institute of Amazonian Research. He's been coming to Camp 41 since the 1980s, and almost all of the field studies he does here, trekking through this jungle, surveying birds, are by ear. In the first half hour of the day, we could hear 50 different species of birds and not see a single one. It's now 5.30, and the faint light of dawn is just beginning to peek through the towering canopy. We have our headlamps on because it's still pretty dark in case we step on a snake. 
channeling Indiana Jones. I mean, there was a viper sighting near the toilets last night. But no snakes we can see now, anyway. Just more exotic sounds, critters, parrots. Makes you feel like you're far away from everything. You just get so much information from hearing. Just by listening, Mario Kohnhoft and his team recently discovered two never-before-known species of potu birds. They also found what they believe to be the world's loudest bird, the white bellbird. About a mile from camp, we stumble on its runner-up. This one's appropriately named a screaming piha. Stick with it for just a second, and I'm going to do something that you might find annoying. But I'm just going to shout. And that usually gets them going. And the more we were talking, the more they were vocalizing. They are stimulated by loud noises. Amazonian ornithologists get so used to the sounds, they can even tell what time of day it is just by listening. And believe it or not, there are actually a few species of Amazonian birds that I think of as old friends. They're species that I encounter regularly that I've never seen, but that I recognize by their sound. There are more species of birds here than any other place on Earth. And that's the really fun thing about being in in a species-rich tropical rainforest is that obviously discovering a new species is a real rush. For a reporter, just getting to be on a three-day overnight sleeping on hammocks in the heart of the Amazon is a rush, especially when it comes to hearing the howler monkeys. Their eerie, exotic howling, you could easily mistake them for the wind. Then the monkeys go silent, and the rest of the forest is awake. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Camp 41 in the state of Amazonas, Brazil. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered here on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548. And coming up, you'll get a conversation with Catherine Price, the author of The Power of Fun. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. It is 31 degrees in Boston, and tonight's lows will drop to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny Tuesday, and temperatures in the mid-30s. On Wednesday, mostly cloudy, and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. 
When was the last time you had fun? Not just like, oh, I saw a funny TikTok, that was fun, but true fun. Like when you'd run around playing tag with friends as a kid. We are out of practice when it comes to fun. And we haven't recognized or paid attention to fun that much. And as a result, we don't even remember how good it feels. Catherine Price is author of the book, The Power of Fun. For NPR's Life Kit, Julia Furlan spoke with Price about how you can identify what's truly fun and carve out the space and time for it. Here's part of their conversation, starting with Julia. I kind of want to start out at the top of this interview, just acknowledging really explicitly that, like, in order to have fun, you need to have your basic needs met. You need to be in a place where you have, you know, safety and and all of those basic things. You need space and safety because I think that's something that, that like, I just want to, like, make it really, really explicit. So what I'd say to that is that, first of all, if you don't have food on the table, if you don't have a place to live, you know, if you're, you've got someone who's seriously sick in your family that you're caring for and that's just all-consuming, I am certainly not saying that you should then add fun to your to-do list. With that said, I think it is very interesting to push back on some other aspects of those assumptions and those arguments against fun. And one is the idea that you can only have fun if you're already doing well. And something I discovered in my research that I thought was really interesting is that the opposite is actually true, that fun can help us do better when we're not doing well. What are some of the techniques, the very simple techniques that people can use to help them make some space for fun? I do think the first step in trying to prioritize fun is to figure out a way to make more space and time for it. And often a lot of the lowest hanging fruit is going to be the time we're currently spending our devices. And then the next step is to just get curious about your own curiosity. I started asking myself this question, and that question was, what is something I say I want to do, Mm -hmm. but I supposedly don't have time for? Right. And I really encourage people to ask themselves that and just see what comes to mind. And for me, what came to mind was learn the guitar, because I have a guitar. (laughs) I have supposedly long wanted to learn to play it. So I ended up signing up for this uh, guitar class at this music studio here in Philadelphia, And it was BYOB, it was Wednesday nights, and it was just so interesting because as I went to this class, I started to feel this sense of energy that buoyed me for the rest of the week. You know, Wednesday nights quickly became the highlight of my week, and I got really intrigued by that feeling. I was like, what is that? And also, you know, is it about the skill that we're learning? Because I think another misconception we have about fun is that if we just stuff more things into our schedules and we just try more things and have more activities, that's going to be fun. So... To answer your question about how to get started, don't do that. Because <laughs> what I quickly realized is that, yeah, it was nice to learn guitar, but it was really the experience of being with other adults in this context where there was no reason other than to have a good time, to play. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between fake fun and true fun and how we can differentiate between the two? So you might be wondering why I I'm talking about true fun as opposed to just fun. So the reason for that is because I realized that the fact that we don't have a good definition of fun means that we're really susceptible to anyone who wants to use the word fun to sell us on their product or their service, their activity, even if that thing does not result in playful connected flow. Mm -hmm. So I use the fake fun to refer to any activity or product, or in some cases, people who, who aren't actually fun, who are presented to us as fun, but they're not fun. 
once you're able to identify and call out fake fun for what it is, then it becomes much easier to clear out space for the good stuff, the true fun. Yeah, I think that what one of the things that I saw as a distinction here that might be helpful to clarify is that like the connected part of true fun, which is that you're enjoying something and you're you're enjoying it with other people or with another person where you're connected to them. But one of the pillars of what I call true fun is this feeling of connection. And I do think it's possible to have fun alone. There's plenty of people who have told me stories of having fun alone. So I think you can feel this sense of connection with the activity that you're doing. You can have this sense of connection with your physical body. But when I asked people around the world to share these stories of, of fun with me, most of them had another person or another creature involved. So I've got a whole, whole list in my book of these fun factors, as I call them. And some of them are things like physicality. You know, some people love physical activities. Other people, that's an anti-fun factor for them. Music, nature, uh, different size groups, like being in a small intimate group, a bigger group. And I think it's kind of, if I may say, kind of fun to think about, to kind of break down your own experiences and figure out why, because it just gives you more ideas. This this book basically leads the reader through... Um, looking at their life and thinking about the things that that bring them into that state of playful connected flow. How do you do a fun audit? First of all, let me acknowledge that a fun audit sounds very unfun. <laughs> but the idea of a fun audit, in my defense, is really an opportunity to kind of evaluate your present existence and figure out how much fun you are currently or are currently not having mm -hmm. and try to hone in a bit more on so what are the situations in which you typically have the most fun what brings you personally into a state of playful connected flow or what is the most right. likely to do that for you because once you do understand the the magnets and the fun factors that that are most likely to lead you into fun that's when you turn fun from an abstract nebulous concept into something you actually can prioritize you can plan for fun Right. A question that I'd love to answer is like, what are, what are people getting wrong about fun? The idea that fun is frivolous, when it is not frivolous at all, it can help connect us with other people. It helps connect us with our own lives. It helps us feel alive. So that's like, you know, one of the biggest things we get wrong about fun, that it's frivolous or that we don't deserve to have it, when in fact, it's enormously important and we do deserve to have it. But I would say that in terms of one thing we get wrong about fun or that we don't think of is that it's good not just for our mental health, but also for our physical health. And just to highlight two ways in which that's true, one is fun's effects on our feelings of loneliness and isolation, which is to say it helps overcome feelings of loneliness and isolation. We feel connected with other people and not alone when we're having fun. That's a really big deal because loneliness and isolation are enormously, hugely bad for our physical health. Another way that fun helps us is by reducing stress. Anything we can do that reduces our baseline stress levels is going to be good for us physically. Mm -hmm. And fun is a very relaxed state. It's simultaneously energizing, but also very rejuvenating. So I think it's just fascinating to think about fun as being a health intervention. That was Catherine Price, author of The Power of Fun, speaking with NPR Life Kit's Julia Furlong. And if having more fun is one of your New Year's resolutions, check out Life Kit's Resolution Planner. The tool helps you mix and match more than 40 ideas, including tips to tap into your creativity or travel better with friends. You can find that at npr.org slash New Year's. 
This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing the data behind American diversity on its new podcast season, Race and Research, available at pewtrusts.org NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR during this holiday stretch. Whatever you're doing, we'll be here with the news, reflections, and good company. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 6 o'clock as all things considered continues. Lows dropping to the mid-20s tonight and tomorrow a mostly sunny Tuesday with highs in the mid-30s. Wednesday mostly cloudy and temperatures in the low 40s. Here's a great way to stay up to date on WBUR events at City Space throughout Greater Boston. And to get first crack at tickets, sign up for the WBUR Events Newsletter. Go to WBUR.org newsletters. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Winter weather turned deadly in western New York over the weekend. This has been a very devastating and difficult storm, unlike anything uh, that even the city of Buffalo is used to getting. You'll get the story on how a barbershop owner sheltered dozens of people during a blizzard. It's Monday, December 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. You'll meet local chefs who stepped up to help feed migrants from the southern border when the migrants started getting sent on buses to Washington, D.C. Also, you'll get one film critic's thoughts on the best movies of 2022. At 6.30, it's Marketplace. The show takes a look at Gen Z slang and workplace miscommunication. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukraine's foreign minister says his government is pitching a peace summit at the United Nations in February. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian Haida has more. In an interview with the Associated Press, Ukraine's top diplomat, Dmitry Kuleba, said, quote, Every war ends in a diplomatic way, but every war also ends on the battlefield. He thinks next February, one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, would be the ideal time to host a peace summit. He wants the UN to host, with General Secretary Antonio Guterres mediating. Kuleba says he wants, quote, everyone on board. That said, he doesn't want Russia to participate unless the country faces a war crimes tribunal first. A tribunal like that remains unlikely before February. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. 
Western New York is getting more snow on top of the four feet plus it got over the weekend. More than two dozen deaths are attributed to the storm in that area and travel and power problems remain. Utility crews are working to restore power but are dealing with access problems and winds that make bucket trucks unusable. In Buffalo, Ryan McSpadden, a surgeon, says he left his house after he ran out of wood for his fireplace and is now staying with friends. When we left on, on Saturday, I mean, you could barely see, you know, 10 feet in front of you because of the wind and the snow. Um, I think that was just the scariest part was that the visibility was basically zero. Meanwhile, airlines have canceled another 5,400 flights today, according to FlightAware. Southwest seems hardest hit, with 67 percent of its flights canceled, apparently due to technical problems, along with the weather. South Korea's military fired warning shots and scrambled fighter jets after five North Korean drones violated its airspace. It's the first time that's happened in five years. One of the drones made it as far as the northern part of the capital region. South Korea says one of the drones returned north, but that the rest disappeared from naval military radars. The financial health of many Americans declined in 2022. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that's a general reversal from a general rise in savings during the pandemic. The data is from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's annual survey. It finds 37 percent of households could not cover expenses for more than a month if they lost their main source of income. And they say that's the case even if they borrowed money, sold assets, or got help from family. Even though unemployment remains low, the survey also finds a sharp rise in what it calls frequent income uncertainties. It links this to the end of pandemic-related financial aid and says the spike was especially large for Hispanic consumers and people under 40. Among renters, nearly a third reported missing or being late with at least one rent payment in the past year. Average rents reached a record high in 2022. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A group of Boston Public School parents is pushing for a temporary indoor mask requirement in schools after the holiday break. Krista Magnuson is part of the group Families for COVID Safety. She says she hopes a mandate will protect against another surge in illness. It's disruptive, um, not just for the kids and the fact that they're losing time in the classroom when they get sick, but it's disruptive, you know, if, if schools are scrambling to find substitute teachers. This just seems like a really good way to sort of protect that learning time, both for the faculty and the students. BPS leaders are set to meet with public health officials this week to consider COVID protocols. If there are any changes, then officials will make an announcement by the end of this week. A Salem, New Hampshire man who died while hiking this weekend in the White Mountains has been identified. Officials with New Hampshire Fish and Game say the native of China went by the name of Tony Lee. They say his phone battery lost power after he set out on an eight and a half mile hike Saturday morning. And they said he did not have a compass or paper map as a backup. Officials also say he was not properly dressed for the sub-freezing temperatures. Lee's death marks the 21st hiking fatality in New Hampshire this year. Severe weather around the country continues affecting travel at Logan Airport in Boston today. The flight tracking website FlightAware indicates 75 cancellations and more than 260 delays today at Logan. Yesterday, Logan had more than 80 cancellations and more than 300 delays. The nearly 70-year-old Brattle Theater in Harvard Square will get a major upgrade in the new year. WBUR's Andrea Shea has more. 
The Brattle is known for showing classic films and for its vintage art house vibe. Now the only independent nonprofit cinema in Cambridge is about to install a state-of-the-art surround sound system. Creative director Ned Hinkle says he's wanted to make this project a reality since taking charge of the theater in 2001. We were hoping that we were going to be able to do it last year, but the supply chain issues stymied uh, the delivery of certain components. But it looks like we're headed for a January installation, so that's great. Hinkle says the Brattles Foundation has raised half the money needed to fund the project. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Salem's inaugural Frozen Fire Festival is now underway at Charlotte Fortin Park, and that goes on tonight until 11. The free festival runs through New Year's Day and features ice sculpture, carvings, fire performers, live music, pop-up stores, and food and drinks. People attending the event also have access to heated igloos, fire pits, and blankets if needed. It's 31 degrees in Boston, with lows dropping to the mid-20s overnight. For Tuesday, mostly sunny. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. More than half the U.S. faced winter weather advisories over the holiday weekend. The worst conditions were in western New York. The city of Buffalo has reported more than two dozen deaths so far. Mayor Byron Brown told NPR some people in Buffalo have been without power since Friday. This has been a very devastating and difficult storm, unlike anything uh, that even the city of Buffalo is used to getting. Around the city, people have been pitching in to help feed and shelter their neighbors. Like Craig Elston, owner of the CNC Cuts Barbershop. He posted this video to TikTok on Saturday afternoon. Yo, please, man. Anybody out there that's stuck, do not stay in your car, man. The barbershop here welcomes you. Get some heat, get some electricity, charge your phone, get in contact with your family. Folks in Buffalo took Elston up on that offer. He told me about 30 people took shelter at his barbershop over the weekend. People were actually sleeping here. A lot of people I, I, I've never even met before. A lot of people that was visiting Buffalo and they got stranded in cars. A lot of people that was without heat and gas. I just wanted them to have somewhere where they could come charge their phone and see if they can get somebody to come help them. Tell me about how the idea came to you that this could actually be a shelter for people. Uh, it really didn't come. Once I seen the first person laid out, on Bailey and Kisington in the snow, it broke my heart. And I'm sitting in here with heat and uh, lights, and the barbershop is warm, and it's a big space that can heat and, and shelter other people. So it just naturally you know, came upon me, like, Craig, open the barbershop up, do a live video on all platforms, and let people know that they can come here and um, get some type of shelter. So you just went on social media and said, I've got a warm place for you to sleep if you need it. And then strangers started showing up. Yeah, everybody. Everybody started to show up. And, you know, I, I did my best to try to get to a corner store to get them some food, some drinks. Um, and there's a vending machine in here. That, you know, they did have access to that. And for the people that didn't have any money, I reached in my own pocket and gave them money to, 
get something to eat. I told people where the closest store at was open. Some people went in packs of five and four and went down there to the store and came back to the shop. There's some people that live in an apartment building that came and gave food. Some people gave food to me, me to eat, because I was so concerned with helping everybody else that sometimes I didn't even eat myself. So what was Christmas dinner? Stuff from the vending machines? Hot Pockets, I hear? Christmas dinner was uh, Vienna sausages, Hot Pockets, chips, peach tea. Um, <laughs> that's, that was Christmas dinner. I'm imagining this is not how you plan to spend Christmas. No, man. I, you know, I mean, my daughters, man. I got, I got a daughter named Aaliyah Elston and Madison Elston that's stranded with their mothers, and I wasn't even able to get some of the things that I got for Christmas to them. So it's kind of heartbreaking in that, you know what I mean? I wasn't able to even see my daughters on Christmas. Yeah, and everybody who was staying at the barbershop was in a variation of the same position. None of them were doing what they planned for Christmas either. No, people were crying. The barbershop floor, it's so crazy because so many footprints is here on the floor. You know, people was sleeping in the corners of the shop sleeping in the, the barber chairs. You know, I put I put TV on so we could watch movies. We watched the football game together. So there was this kind of camaraderie that formed. Yeah. And a lot of people were telling me thank you. Uh, the first person that knocked on the door, it was uh, like 10 o'clock at night, and his fingers was like almost purple, and his face mm-hmm. was red. And he was telling the people that, yo, I, I would have died if I would have been out there another two minutes. And, I didn't know it was that serious at that point. I felt bad because I was like, you know, just making a normal joke. Like, why are you out there? Like, what you doing? You crazy? But then I seen people dying, and I was like, oh, yo, this is serious. So then, you know, I felt bad. Like, you know, I was like, yo, I got to help other people. Like, I'm going to help him. Clearly, I'm not going to leave him out there in the cold. How many people do you still have there? Oh, uh, at this current moment, it's just me in here. Okay. Um, I'm just going to stick where I'm at and – you know, the door is still open for people that want to come. I know this is far from the most important thing right now, but did you give any haircuts? Actually, I did. You did? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I cut maybe five people, man. It's <laughs> unbelievable. They're like, yo, can you get a cut? And I'm like, seriously? You make yeah. a little money while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to be buying food for 30 people who are sleeping in your barbershop, you can at least earn some cash through cutting people's hair. You know, you're saying that it's sad you weren't able to see your daughters on Christmas, but I'm guessing this is probably the most memorable Christmas you've had in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm never going to forget this Christmas because in front of my eyes, I've seen people that was almost half, like half to death. And if I can have an opportunity to help somebody, I think that's what we all are supposed to do. Um, we're supposed to try to assist and help one another as much as we can instead of the crazy stuff that be going on around the city, man. Well, Craig, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for all you've done for the community. I appreciate it. That was Craig Elston, owner of the CNC Cuts Barbershop in Buffalo. Over the weekend, several buses from Texas arrived here in Washington. They dropped off migrants near the official residence of Vice President Kamala Harris in some of the coldest weather D.C. tends to get this time of year. It's not clear who organized this latest round of drop-offs, but it seems similar to other times when the governors of Texas, Florida, and Arizona have transported migrants to cities that discourage deportation. In previous instances, local governments and volunteers have stepped in to help those who arrive with limited resources, 
NPR's Gus Contreras learned how some D.C. chefs are part of the effort. Inside a steamy home kitchen in northwest Washington, Ana Monke is busy making tamales. Monke has been making hundreds of tamales a week since August, 300 on Tuesdays and about 200 on Saturdays. Recently, she made an order of 400 in one morning. The banana leaf wrapped tamales she's making are going to migrants who've recently arrived in Washington. <laughs> Christianita Bien is a DC chef who was moved by the stories of immigrants arriving on buses. The immediate sensation was like, how can I help? Coming to this country as an immigrant is already uh, a hard enough journey as it is of leaving everything you know behind in the hopes of finding something better. Uh, it definitely hit home. EWN teamed up with chef Eric Brunner-Yang, who also wanted to help out. Both chefs are from immigrant families and have volunteered to cook in the midst of real-world crises. A thing that we say often is that, you know, as cooks, oftentimes we don't know how to do a lot of things, but we do know how to cook and people need to eat. Before the pandemic, EWN went to Tijuana to cook meals for Hondurans migrating north. And Brunner-Yang was in Poland earlier this year feeding Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. They came up with a plan to make tamales, a meal that would be familiar to the mostly Venezuelan migrants making the journey to Washington. So with money raised from a GoFundMe, they hired Anna Monke. She's a mother of one of Brunner Yang's employees. She'd already been making and selling tamales as a side hustle, but now they'd be going to people in need. Next, the crew needed a way to get warm tamales into the hands of hungry migrants. My name is Jessica Cisneros, and I currently am a volunteer with Mutual Aid Migrant Solidarity. Jessica Cisneros has been helping out for about six months now, distributing food and more. For this, there was this clear vacuum where no one was doing anything, no one in power was doing anything to respond, um, and there was such a huge need, and it was something that like I could just jump right into. Since buses started arriving, D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser has established an Office of Migrant Services for the city. But volunteers like Cisneros are essential, and Cisneros says it's been tough juggling it all. Her normal job, raising her daughter, and helping new arrivals feel welcomed and cared for, but that the work is worth it. I feel like there's a lot of people that lament the state of the world, but like aren't actually doing a lot about it. And so I feel like I've met so many people who are really doing something about it. And there are these webs, you know, of people that care um, in DC. And so it's been lovely to get tapped into those. On one of the first cold days of the fall, I meet Cisneros in northeast Washington. The trunk of her car is full of winter clothing for the newly arrived migrants, unprepared for the weather. It's not the mall night, but she's passing out fresh mango and pineapple Chef Irabien had left over from a catering gig. Osvaldo is 37 and originally from Venezuela. He asked us not to use his last name due to his immigration status. Osvaldo's checking out some cozy sweatpants and clothes for his kids. They made the journey on a bus from Texas. I have a brother who lives in Virginia, and I came with my 12-year-old son. My wife and three other children are on their way to meet us. Osvaldo tells me everything has been hard about their journey, but that they're doing it for the future of their kids. The hardest thing about this is being without your family, with everything that's going on. Traveling through the jungle isn't easy, and a lot of people died along the way. Everything is hard. 
but it will sort itself in the end. Osvaldo says he hopes to be allowed to work soon, but isn't quite sure what's next. For now, he's thankful for the help. Back at the restaurant, Chef Irabien says as long as migrants continue to come, they'll try to find a way to keep feeding them. It's not like you can just make one meal and you're done. People need to eat every day. <laughs> Being able to cultivate community within our immigrant circles is, is what makes everything be able to flow very, very easily. Gus Contreras, NPR News. An NPR investigation has found that in some states, kids can be taken from their mothers and fathers forever if the parents fail to pay certain foster care debts, even debts they didn't know about. What happens when parents try to fight back tomorrow on All Things Considered? You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 619. And coming up on All Things Considered, you'll get a film critic's opinion on the best movies of 2022. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. In business news here on WBUR, stores are now in one of the biggest retail weeks of the year. Retailers Association of Massachusetts President John Hurst says the week between Christmas and New Year's can account for more than 10 percent of a shop's seasonal sales. And he says typically this week people are spending cash and gift cards they receive for the holidays and are making exchanges. And as stores clear out their inventory, Hearst says shoppers could score some bargains. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at WBUR City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 31 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-20s tonight, mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been a year of recovery for Hollywood. Ticket sales bounced back during the summer. So did the number of films released to theaters. And while the numbers are still only about two-thirds of what they were before the pandemic, they represent a big jump from the last two years. As for the quality of the new releases, 
Well, that's up too, judging from critic Bob Mondello's 10 best list, which positively overflows. Two solid years of studios holding back, theaters hanging on, audiences thinking twice, and then suddenly in the spring it was everything, everywhere, all at once. Just as folks were coming out of pandemic-era lockdowns, a comedy about infinite possibilities, less chaos theory than chaos practical. What's happening? A middle-aged Asian businesswoman gets a big surprise during a tax audit. I'm not your husband. I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, whole time to help you. Doesn't matter. She'll learn to multiverse hop in pursuit of her best self. Everything Everywhere All at Once leads a parade of impressive films this year centering on women. Another is Tar, in which Kate Blanchett gives a breathtaking performance as a symphony conductor who tells an interviewer early on that she is all about control. The illusion is that like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. That level of control doesn't work out very well for Lydia Tarr, and it's almost unimaginable for the women in an isolated religious colony who are told in Sarah Polly's Women Talking that to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must forgive their abusers. We know that we've not imagined these attacks. We know that we are bruised and infected and pregnant, and some of us are dead. We cannot forgive because we are forced to. Women Talking is a passionate adaptation of a best-selling novel. For a real-life instance of the power of one woman talking, there's the documentary All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which explores photographer Nan Golden's career as an artist. Photography is like a flash of euphoria. And gave me a voice. Then shows how she used that voice in a long shot but successful crusade to hold the museum endowing Sackler family accountable for the opioid addiction crisis caused by their company, Purdue Pharma. We need to demand that the Met Museum delude the Tate to refuse donations from the Sacklers and take down their name. All the beauty in the bloodshed qualifies as art in its own right. Something you could also say of the Bloodshed Without Beauty epic that is All Quiet on the Western Front, the first German-made version of the wrenching anti-war classic about a hapless German soldier in World War I. Sweeping and horrifying in its carnage, All Quiet on the Western Front feels as if it's acquired fresh resonance as soldiers die by the thousands in Ukraine. A conflict of a more intimate sort fuels the Banshees of Inisharan about a longtime friendship that one day simply ceases to be. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. Like me yesterday. Banshees of Inisharan is a tale of buddies that plays like a blood feud. That's six of my top ten. The next two are foreign language films, though the first of them barely has any language at all. Eo. Eo centers on a donkey who is cast adrift when a Polish circus is disbanded. Eo. A portrait of modern Europe as seen through the biggest brown eyes imaginable, Eo is at once a curiosity, an adventure, and an emotionally freighted commentary on humans and nature, definitely not for children. The Korean detective story, Decision to Leave, feels far more conventional until at midpoint, it changes course. 
Vertigo-inspired, but very much its own vision, it boasts lush romance, obscure motives, and characters you trust about as far as the director can drop them off a cliff. If Decision to Leave reminds movie buffs of Hitchcock, the drama Living will remind them of Kurosawa. It's a British remake of To Live, Kurosawa's Japanese portrait of a bureaucrat who doesn't look for purpose in his life right. until a doctor tells him his life is almost over. If only to be alive for one day. But I realize it. I don't know how. Bill Nye's character learns to make a joyful noise without ever raising his voice. And rounding out the top ten, The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's fictionalized account of his own childhood and his discovery, with a little help from his mom, that the world, even his model train set, looks different through the lens of a movie camera. We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. The Fablemans qualifies as Spielberg's most heartfelt film, which is saying something. Ten is an arbitrary number, so I'm going to breeze right past it. Spielberg wasn't alone in celebrating the silver screen, while a lot of people are watching films on home screens. La La Land's Damien Chazelle gives us a three-hour bacchanalian comedy about Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties called Babylon. What do you say we come in for my close-up now? While he's looking at the Twenties, director Jordan Peele has a fresh take on 1950s sci-fi in the genre-expanding alien invasion flick, Nope. No, 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 no. You guys gonna tell me what's going on? Hell no. no. Also looking at film itself, the documentary Three Minutes, A Lengthening, which does a fascinating deep dive into some rediscovered pre-World War II footage, and No Bears, in which filmmaker Jafar Panahi, who spent the last decade banned from making movies in Iran, plays a director named Jafar Panahi, who's making a film just outside Iran. Panahi was recently imprisoned by Iranian authorities, so No Bears registers as a cinematic protest. Also from Iran, Asghar Farhadi's caustic social commentary, A Hero, about a man who becomes a celebrity after seeming to do a good deed. There's also a caustic French commentary, Happening, in which a college student seeks an abortion, harrowing in the 1960s and sadly feeling way too current for comfort. Meanwhile, parents and children are centered in the eerie thriller Nanny, about a woman caring for a youngster in New York so she can bring her own child from Senegal. Very soon, Lamin. And the warm but wrenching After Sun about a dad on vacation with his 11 year old daughter. You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whatever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take. Dad! Family and youth are also front and center in one of the year's most intriguing sci fi films, an eco fable in which humans seem hell bent on destroying an entire planet. No, not the one that has tall blue folks with tails, a little indie flick called Vesper, after the 13 year old who's trying to fix a bioengineering disaster that's wiped out all of the world's crops. I need to find a key to unlock the seeds, I'll make them fertile. So we never starve again. Vesper, made for a fraction of what Avatar probably spent on catering, uses mostly practical effects to deliver its environmental message, which is not to diss what James Cameron accomplished with a $400 million budget, motion capture critters floating in digitized water that may not be wet, but that's satisfyingly drenched with symbolism. Skip the plot, check out the visuals, and let's say we count The Way of Water as the year's most persuasive animated film. That'll round out a second ten. Not bad for a year that Hollywood spent playing catch-up. I'm Bob Mandela.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Marketplace is next at 630. It's 31 degrees in Boston and lows will dip to the mid 20s overnight. For Tuesday, mostly sunny skies. Tomorrow's temperatures in the mid 30s. And on Wednesday, mostly cloudy and highs reaching the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.